This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Dead and no one told me. I walked past his office and his assistant was bawling. That's two-time Man Booker Prize-winning author Peter Carey reading from his new book, The Chemistry of Tears. Peter will join me today to talk about the secret love story and the mysterious automaton at the heart of the novel. And it's Canada Day, our nation's birthday. We'll celebrate in a couple of ways. First, Frank Verschuren from the Canadian Tourism Commission will be by to tell us about some unique and essential Canadian experiences from coast to coast. And then we'll have a look back at the history of our beloved national anthem. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. South of the border, a huge victory for advocates of national health care. The United States Supreme Court ruled that President Obama's Affordable Care Act usually known as Obamacare, is constitutional. This means everyone in America will now be required to have personal health insurance, and insurance companies can no longer discriminate against children, the elderly, and people with pre-existing conditions. Many are attributing Obama's victory to Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative appointee who voted in favor of the law, which resulted in a 5-4 decision. President Obama says regardless of politics, the decision will be a major turning point for America. Whatever the politics, today's decision was a victory for people all over this country whose lives will be more secure because of this law and the Supreme Court's decision to uphold it. The ruling comes months before the U.S. election with Mitt Romney and fellow Republicans vowing to repeal the bill if they're elected. There's also good news out of the states when it comes to Zoomers and employment. A new study has found that people 55 and over account for nearly 70% of job growth since January 2010. The study was performed by the outplacement agency Challenger Gray and Christmas and was based on an analysis from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. John Challenger says employers are choosing candidates who will require less training and who can add value to the company immediately. By the way, those numbers are similar to the employment picture here in Canada. A new report in the Journal of Medical Ethics says safety fears and ageism mean elderly people in care homes are being denied a basic human right, consensual sex. The article argues that physical intimacy and sexuality are a normal and healthy part of aging and that the lack of attention paid to residents' sexual needs is concerning. Currently, many care facilities struggle to deal with the complex moral and ethical issues when residents express their sexuality, especially when one or more partner may suffer from some form of dementia. 
Staff often struggle to balance residents' rights with their duty of care. However, the report says that older people, including those suffering from dementia, should have the right to choose whether they participate in consensual sex, and that while a person may perform poorly on a test assessing mental state, they are still often able to express a preference for a friend or lover. And finally, we mourn the loss of writer Nora Ephron. She passed away from leukemia this week at the age of 71. Ephron was a master of personal journalism with works like Heartburn, which chronicled her divorce from Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame. But she was probably best known as a screenwriter with great romantic comedies to her name. She was nominated for three Academy Awards for When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, and Silkwood. She also directed some of the films she wrote, including You've Got Mail, Bewitched, and her final movie, Julie and Julia. A memorial for Nora Ephron will take place on July 9th. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's Canada Day, a good time to think about how beautiful, fascinating, and diverse our country is. What places are the epitome of Canada? The Canadian Tourism Commission has come up with a list of signature Canadian experiences, a kind of bucket list of things to see and do here at home. I reached Frank Verschuren in Vancouver. So really a list that aims to sort of differentiate Canada from our competitors, certainly by highlighting some of the travel experiences that exemplify Canada's national tourism brand, if you will. And these really are experiences that are memorable, they're authentic, and engage certainly our domestic and international audiences with the Canada's people and geography and culture. So what are some of the signature experiences? Well, we have over 163 of them. Here's something I wouldn't have thought of, a grizzly bear watching in B.C.? Yeah, there's a number of uh, uh, opportunities, certainly in British Columbia now, to, to really start to become engaged with uh, grizzly bear viewing uh, in various parts of British Columbia, particularly along the, uh, along the West Coast. And certainly uh, there are opportunities in the interior. And there's a number of operators in the province that focus specifically on taking engaging uh, travelers to actually witness the uh, lifestyles of grizzly bears uh, in their natural habitat. Um, There's opportunities from an Aboriginal perspective to go out and look, go in search of what they call the the spirit bear, which is the whitish version of a a grizzly bear. It's um, something to do with a genetic mutation. Now, what about here in Ontario? When you talk about wilderness, uh, all the iconic paintings are of Algonquin Park. Is that on the list? What we're doing is featuring, actually, um, Algonquin Park's uh, Wolf Howl. To actually become involved with the park naturalists, uh, travel along the uh, highway corridor, Highway 60 corridor, I think it is in there, and uh, stop in the middle of the dark and uh, and the uh, along the side of the road and uh, turn off your lights, and uh, the uh, the park rangers will um, will howl to the wolves, and hopefully you'll hear them howl back. It's not always a guaranteed um, experience, but when it does happen, it's quite uh, it's quite extraordinary. Anything else in Ontario? If you go over to uh, 
Manitoulin Island, um, there's the Great Spirit Circle Trail, uh, which is uh, really a cultural immersion for Aboriginal uh, life as it relates to um, the Aboriginal peoples found on, on Manitoulin Island. Well, what you get to do is go to uh, learn about their culture and their traditions and the historic facts and local legends, really, of those people who, um, who were the original inhabitants, inhabitants of Manitoulin. What have you got in Quebec and uh, obviously the Maritimes? If you want to go to Quebec City, there's an opportunity to get into a really interesting historical and um, cultural culinary tour in old Quebec. In the Maritimes, there's a host of types of different things to do there. I mean, you can go tidal bore rafting in, uh, in New Brunswick. In uh, Newfoundland, there's an opportunity to go and, uh, with a company on what they call uh, a cultural eco adventure. You get a chance to uh, you get a chance to travel around uh, the Avalon Peninsula over a three night period. It's a self directed driving itinerary, but they provide you with all of the uh, highlights and um, and things to see and do. You get to stay in uh, period. Um, architecture-type homes, uh, one different one every night, and a real chance to really uh, absorb uh, Newfoundland hospitality at its finest. Okay. Frank, for sure, and thanks for joining us. Happy Canada Day. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can get more information about these unique Canadian experiences online at www.canada.travel. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. It's time for a quick break, and then we'll return with the two-time Man Booker Award-winning author Peter Carey to talk about his newest novel, The Chemistry of Tears. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. An automaton, a secret love story, a man and a woman who can never meet, and the price of global warming. Those are the elements of two-time Booker Prize winner Peter Carey's latest novel, The Chemistry of Tears. A museum conservator has to grieve in private when her longtime lover dies suddenly. So her boss gives her a special project, to piece together an extraordinary 19th century automaton. Peter Carey came by the studio on a recent visit to Toronto. What is it, Felicia? Oh, haven't you heard? Mr. Tyndall's dead. What I heard was Mr. Tyndall hurt his head. I thought, for God's sake, pull yourself together. Where is he, Felicia? And that was a reckless thing to ask because Matthew Tyndall and I had been lovers for 13 years. But he was my secret and I was his. Peter Carey, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Well, there's so many layers in this novel, but it links a contemporary woman, a conservator in a museum, with a 19th century Englishman. And what links them both are turning to creating an automaton, a special object, as a way of dealing with grief. Tell me a bit about the theme of grief in your book. Yeah, I couldn't have done what you just did. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Um, the, um, the the theme of grief was really discovered. I mean, I didn't sit down and think, oh, I'm going to write a book about grief. And, and indeed, someone asked me to be on a panel about grief, and I said, well, I know nothing about it. But um, what 
what I was I, I was interested in the automaton. I was interested in the inventiveness of the of the nineteenth century, which has ended up producing such destructive forces in the world today. And it's only as I started to think, you know, there's, there's a woman, there's a woman in a who's got to be a conservator in a museum, and I gave to her sort of a life situation which I'd heard about that there'd been a woman in in in, a, in, a, in a, working in an office and her boss, she and her boss had a long, long, long relationship which nobody knew anything about and then he died suddenly and she couldn't tell anybody and all their emails all their emails were on the office computer and everything. So I started to think this will be, you know, my characters I decided she would be a woman This this will be her situation and it's amazing how long it took me to understand that pairing that life situation and that woman with the task she had to undertake was significant and bigger than my original idea. That is, she's grieving, she's thinking about life and death and love, and what's the job she's been given? Well, to put together a machine that simulates life. There's also this business about the comfort of work. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, I think most people, many people, when when faced with these situations, do tend to immerse themselves in work. And and I think it's quite common, isn't it, when people die, people get themselves immersed in the mechanics of, uh, of you know, the wake or, or the arrangements for the funeral and the memorial. And so keeping busy generally seems to work for us a little bit to ease the pain of it a little bit. I mean, she's she not only using work, of course, she uses a lot of alcohol, <laughs> uh, which, you know, is both of them, you know, really geared to take take the edge off the pain, I suppose. There's also this whole larger environmental theme. Mm. Well, that's that's really that's really really what I was interested in, and um, I mean I grew up in a family that sold motor cars and had sold early for my grandfather, my father, my brother, my sister, my mother. All of these people have been in, involved in with the internal combustion engine and and loved it really. And it just occurred to me relatively recently that. Uh, I mean, if you really wanted to destroy the planet, you know, if you were if you were a hostile space alien, say, uh, you could uh, if you just all you would have to do is come down with the plans for the internal combustion engine and go and come back two hundred years later, and your work would be almost done. I mean, our family loved the internal combustion engine, and we're full of so much admiration for that sort of invention. And uh, and when I look at the environment now, the world we're living in, and see that uh, we're acting as if our planet's one and a half times as big as it is already and we're stretching it past the limit and it's going to break and we're incapable of doing anything about it, it seems, until, well, at least until something truly awful happens. You told The Guardian that you started out in a place where you were going to write about the engine and how did it turn into writing about this incredible automaton? I was looking for an engine that was sort of fanciful and interesting that showed a lot of ingenuity and and somehow I, f- I found this cross section of Vorkinson's duck this this uh, automaton made in the 18th century and it just made me smile. I mean it, it's a it's such a comic sort of conceit and the notion of a grown man in the middle of the 19th century going all the way to Germany with these plans of this mad duck tickled me, I suppose. Now I went on YouTube and I looked at this incredible, recently restored swan mm, at a, a beautiful a museum in England, and it, which uh, 
one of the articles said was your inspiration. Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, you know, in the, read the novel, you'll find the duck turns into a swan and you would think that maybe the inspiration is a fairy story or something like that. In fact, it was much more prosaic and much more rewarding, I think, in that I was talking to a, a, a conservator at the Victorian Albert Museum in London and I was talking to her about Falkenson's duck. And she said, you know, there's this really beautiful swan at the Bose, Bose Museum. And she told me about it and I said, well, can I, can I see it? Photograph, And she said, you can do better. Just go on YouTube and type in Silver Swan. Uh, and I did. And there's this gorgeous thing. Now, that in itself is lovely. Uh, but I could have imagined the duck as lovely too if, uh, if I'd wished to. But what came with the Silver Swan was the fact that they had just restored it and they'd kept a, a wonderful account of their work day by day by day by day as they pulled it apart and put it back together again, which for me as a novelist, is really invaluable because it's not so much I'm interested in the actual mechanics, but I'm interested in what my, what my characters are going to do and what they've... So, so it's not that the book's sort of technical about how to build a swan, but I know what, what their problems are going to be every day and their emotions are going to be caught up with all of that. I get to talk to the guy who did the restoration, who's a what's called a horologist, a word yeah. I have to, you know, all these new words, automaton, which I can now say properly at least, horologist is the clockmaker, and I, his name was Matthew Reed, and I, he thought I was nuts. And when I had particular problems to solve, I'd write to him or, or talk to him, and I'd say, you know, Matthew, I want my character to, um, she's got to discover, the, she's not going to know what she's going to have to restore or put together, and she's got to go into her workroom and it's going to be there. I imagine some cardboard boxes or something. He said, no, tea chests. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your main character is a woman. Mm. You're good at writing women. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you choose to write women? Well, they, I mean, this is pretty controversial, pretty radical. But, you know, they're human. <laughs> <laughs> Aside so, from that. I think when you're writing about any character, our job, I think, is to be beyond ourselves, to be bigger than ourselves. Uh, the business of being me is not my business. My business is to be other and to imagine what it is to be someone else. And then when you tr- get into doing this, then you've really, all you really, I suppose, need to deal with is what are the restrictions and rules and spaces uh, within which the character can operate. Thank you very much, Peter Carey. Thank you. The Chemistry of Tears is published by Random House Canada and available in bookstores and online. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. It's Canada Day, and we're celebrating all day long here on the new AM740 Zoomer Radio. In just a moment, we'll take a look at the history of our national anthem, O Canada. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. O Canada was officially declared to be Canada's national anthem on this day, July 1st, in 1980. That was over 100 years after the earliest version of the song was performed on June 24th, 1880. It had been originally commissioned by the Lieutenant Governor of Quebec, Theodore Robitaille, for the 1880 Saint-Jean-Baptiste Ceremony. The famous French-Canadian composer Calixa Lavallée wrote the music, which was set to a French poem by the Quebec judge Sir Adolphe Basile Routier. 
The premiere of the piece didn't seem remarkable at the time, and it wasn't noticed by English Canada until years later, when in 1901 it was sung to the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall, later King George V and Queen Mary, during a tour of Canada. In the years that followed, many English Canadians took a crack at their own version based on the original French lyrics. In 1908, Collier's Weekly magazine held a competition to write new English lyrics for the song, and Robert Stanley Weir, who, like Routier, was also a judge, had the winning entry. This version was published and became a popular song, but still not an official national anthem. Then, in 1939, it became the de facto national anthem when King George VI remained at attention during its playing at the dedication of the National War Memorial in Ottawa. For the next 40 years, it joined God Save the Queen as an anthem played and sung at many public and formal events. Finally, in 1980, the National Anthem Act formally made O Canada the official Canadian national anthem. Okay, you can sit down now. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me for the Canada Day edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I hope you're having a great holiday weekend. Keep listening. We've got lots of terrific Canadian music to keep you company here on the new AM740. And please come back next Sunday when my guest will be Karen Grieve Young. We'll talk about how to find out exactly where your money is going when you donate to charity. See you then. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.